You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Um, gracious Father, uh, we are grateful and we thank you, Lord, for your, your grace upon grace um, uh, and for all that we have from you. Um, Lord, what do we have that we did not receive? Um, speak to us now um, as we start another short series. Uh, take this time and make, uh, be with us. Make it yours. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um, it is. It's really great to see everybody and looking forward to this series and kind of seeing where it goes. We just finished one out of Colossians. I'm sure my brain is still there. There's going to be some residual drippings that come back into it. But staying in Paul, um, we're going to look next three weeks at 1 Corinthians 15, a single chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, um, uh, known to many of us, um, among other things, it's one of the readings uh, that's, an, uh, that's, that's often read at funerals, one of the epistles that's in our prayer book as a suggested reading for funerals. I think it's what I want read at my funeral, but you know, they're all good. I mean, we, you know, there's an adage um, with the prayer book that we marry and bury well, and it's true. I mean, if you just need sort of a shot in the arm, just pick up a prayer book when you're waiting in church and just read either the service for uh, matrimony or the service for burial. And, uh, and you'll be heartened. You really will. You'll be lifted up. Um, it's just good. Thanks, Bela. Um, so three, uh, three weeks in one chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. It's 58 verses long, so it's pretty long. Um, uh, uh, why am I doing it? I don't really know. <laughs> That's one thing I didn't know. Uh, uh, Christianity is Christ, um, phrase that I'm pulling out. I don't remember where I picked that up either. Uh, I just wanted to deal with this chapter in kind of some detail. Um, and so come with me for the ride if you want to. Um, uh, it's one of, it's, it's hard to, it's, it's easy to say this about a lot of different verses in whether it's Paul's letters or the New Testament or the Bible, but this is a central passage, uh, especially around the resurrection. Um, if you're looking at a single chapter, a single place in the scripture that wants to deal frontally with the resurrection of Christ at every level. And I think that's how I want to unpack this, whether it's at what we might call an apologetic level, that this really happened. This is truly true, really real, and actually actual in terms of a verifiable event. Um, this is a place you go in terms of a, you might say, a doctrinal uh, implication of how um, the resurrection forms such a, an important part of Christian doctrine. I mean, even saying a sentence like that, you're like, duh. I mean, of course it does. Um, this is where we get the phrase, if Christ were not raised, we amongst all would be most pitied. That's what we'll talk about next week in a particular way. Um, that the church falls away. Christian doctrine uh, as you want to call it, falls away. The creeds fall away. If this cornerstone is pulled out, the whole building will fall. What cornerstone is this? If archaeologists tomorrow find the bones of Jesus, and it's like, these are they. We know for sure that this was Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph the carpenter. He died, and he never got out of the grave. We're not here next Saturday. We're not here next Sunday. We, we, you don't, we don't need to be. Let me put it that way. Um, it's the central aspect of, of doctrine. 
But then I hope, thank you all very much, um, uh, then I hope for all of our times together, and, and whether it's my class or any class or any sermon, um, uh, that it's a pastoral word, um, that it's a word that touches us in the place that needs to be touched, that gives us hope where we're resigned, that gives us, um, I'm going to hit pause. Hey, Caroline, good morning. So, um, everybody, y'all are so nice. What a, what a great church we have. Everybody coming in, standing up. I mean, it's just really good. Hello, Gene. Good morning. Come on in. Come on in. So, um, uh, Leslie's back there. So, um, really, y'all are just y'all are great. I really appreciate y'all. So, and it's getting hot. This is just no good. Who's the? Let's see some Bible trivia. I don't remember his name. Who's the? character in Acts where Paul is going on and on and on in a warm room and he falls out of the window and he dies. Defenestration. I remember that's the name for falling out of a window. Um, What's his name? Anyway, I hope that doesn't happen this morning in a a warm room because I'm already getting hot. So so I hope hope the series touches on at least three levels, um, the empirical, the verifiable level, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It happened. He got up. He was raised. He's in the passive tense. We'll see that. He was raised by his father. He was really and truly dead. Three days dead. That's one of the most important parts of why he's three days dead. The body was decomposing. The DNA started to, get to shut down, started to, uh, uh, to, to decompensate. Uh, and he was raised. He came out of the grave. So that's the first. The second, uh, that it's the centerpiece of, it, it forms one of the, uh, the cornerstones of our Christian doctrine, of our whole body of belief, why we believe what we believe, um, the creeds, that, uh, 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 the, the Reformation sole, if you want to call it that, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Um, but then most importantly, perhaps for me, this is where my heart always thumps, the pastoral level, that it touches you where you need to be touched, um, the place where you need to be raised um, or encouraged or given uh, a word. Lord, speak. Let that word come. Um, so let's go into it. Uh, let's read the passage first, and then we're going to do um, uh, a little bit from John Barclay, a New Testament scholar, and that's going to be a handout that you can take home. And then, we'll, uh, and then we'll really pick it apart. Um, so 1 Corinthians 15, the first 11 verses, reads like this. Now I would remind you, brothers, um, of the gospel I preached to you, and which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then He appeared to Cephas, it's in the name for Peter, that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James, that's probably James, the one who wrote the epistle of James, Jesus' half-brother, um, the full biological son of Mary and Joseph, that James. Um, Not James, the son of Zebedee, um, one of the sons of thunder, James and John, and the disciples, most likely. We don't really know, but that's what we think. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me, toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And this is the middle, this is the first part of a long section. Again, it goes on to 58 verses, and we'll keep looking at it a few more next week and the weeks after. Good morning. Um, uh, let's do this. Um, John Barclay teaches in Durham, uh, Durham, England, University of Durham, New Testament scholar a couple of years ago, several years ago now, I'm looking around the room for anybody from Beeson or something like that. If I know the name John Barclay, does that matter to anybody? Um, no, yeah, so William Barclay, different one. Um, uh, still very much alive. Um, I think he was in Birmingham a couple of years ago, if I remember right. Um, and I was doing something, and I really wanted to hear him. He's a great scholar. He wrote a big book. It's probably about 1,200 pages. I actually read it called Paul and the Gift. It sort of shifted the weight of New Testament. This is the boring part. But this is very, this is very classy. This is very teachy, this first, first 20 minutes. Um, uh, sort of shifted the weight of the conversation in New Testament scholarship. Um, if you're following this, especially around Christmas and Easter, it's coming up. We're still, Time Magazine and some others will pick up uh, uh, what's called the new perspective on Paul or the search for the historical Jesus. There's these. There's always sort of a new. That's probably true. Um, directions and weight and uh, and interest to sort of draw out what it, what was the Bible really saying? It can't mean what it means. It's got to be something else, that kind of idea. Um, one of those that came out was a recast, uh, a perspective on Paul, and they called it the new perspective on Paul. And there were some people, John Barclay being one of the definitive voices, that have sort of closed that and said, no, we kind of think the way the church has heard Paul uh, for most of his existence, last 2,000 years, in most parts of the world, um, is generally right. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, we, we, we don't need to come up with a new perspective. And I'm overstating it. There's some really good figures in that. Jimmy Dunn, James D.G. Dunn, um, N.T. Wright, a lot of us will know of him. He's really good on some things. Um, he's not so good on justification, in my humble opinion. Who am I to say that? I know, but... Um, and N.T. Wright is a winsome figure. Thanks be to God for N.T. Wright. We, we need more of him in the church. But the new perspective on Paul, Barclay wants to close the door on it a little bit. And in and, and, and his big book, Paul and the Gift, is where I'm getting this. Uh, he did something really helpful, I think. When we think about the word grace, which is the same word, it's almost interchangeable for the word gift, grazia. Um, you can hear that in the Spanish or in, a, in Italian or some of the others, gracias, gra, uh, grazie, gratitude is in that word, um, Eucharist, Eucharisto, um, I give thanks, Eucharisteo, where do we get the word Eucharist, the thanksgiving, um, gift, gratitude, grace, all come from the same root. You almost use them interchangeably, gift and grace. And so he wants to ask the question, when we say the word grace, what do we mean? And he came up with what he called six perfections of grace, six areas, six different domains. 
where if you perfect it, kind of coming out of, you know, in sort of the Matthew 5 sense, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, that word is related to the word telos, which we some of us use in different parts of our, our work, um, uh, familiar with it from philosophy and some other areas, where telos, like the finish or the end, where it's both a termination, but it's also the completion. So it's the end point, but it's also how you work the goal-oriented, how you move towards a completion. That perf- the six perfections of grace, then, he wants to come up with, I find really helpful. So we start to realize that we, we, it helps us be more precise when we say, well, well, he doesn't believe in grace. You might ask, what sort of grace does he not believe in? Which perfection does he not emphasize in the way that I do? Um, and so on that sheet, it's definitely something you can take home if you're interested or throw away if you want to do that. Start a fire because it's starting to be cold. Um, these different ways that we might understand when we talk about grace, especially when you put a, put a modifier on it, like pure grace or sheer grace or something else like that. Um, and he came up with these six. Superabundance, singularity, priority, incongruity, efficacy, non-circularity. And so it's by grace that you have been saved. And, uh, and this is um, uh, not by works um, for uh, this is not your doing so that no man may boast. So what do we mean by that? Or by grace, by the grace of God, I am what I am, as he says here in 1 Corinthians 15. Which grace, which perfections of grace does he have in mind here? And so just to take a few minutes, I want to sort of put this in our minds before we then go in and hopefully really pull apart some of, uh, some of the word, 1 Corinthians 15, and let it do its work on us. But to think about these different ways of giving gifts coming up on Christmas. It's actually at a horizontal level, um, the way that gift giving, even the way we give gifts to each other, can be perfected along these lines. But then certainly on the vertical level, the way that the gift of God, the grace of God, remember those words are intertwined, almost interchangeable, uh, uh, how they have different emphases, how how we hear them in different ways and at different times. Remember that pastoral level? So the question is, what about you? What about you? What word do you need to hear? Are you dying to hear? Are you dead already and needing to hear this word that's going to get you out of the grave um, in the same way that Christ Jesus was died, was buried, and the third day he rose again? What's that word? What's the word, the perfection, that's going to pull you up and out? So, superabundance. We talk about the superabundance of a gift that I give you or that you give me or one that God gives us. It has to do with the supreme scale, the lavishness, or the permanence of the gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish, but have it just drips over the side, overflowing in terms of the lavishness of the gift. Um, a new car. I want you to have that. But Dad, we couldn't afford it. It's yours. It's yours. I want you to have it. This is the biggest thing I've ever gotten. A lavish gift. We think of it. That's, that's one way to think of it. Singularity. The attitude of the giver as marked solely and purely by benevolence or goodness. The giver only gives what is beneficial and would never give a gift uh, which bring harm or could be punisher or, uh, or judgment. God um, is nothing but good and benevolent. Um, So something like out of Luke 11, um, uh, what father among you, if a son asks for a fish, 
um, will instead give, uh, instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The singular intention of the giver who gives only good things. And here's an example out of church history that some of us will know if you're interested in these sorts of things, where if this aspect of grace is um, uh, perfected out of, out of step, something like Marcion happens, one of the great early heretics of the church, where he wanted to draw this distinction between God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, God of the Old Testament, mean, wrathful, angry, vengeance, judgment, God of the New Testament, love, nice, kind, good. He perfected, Marcion perfected uh, this aspect of grace over and against another aspect of uh, it is mine to avenge, says the Lord. Um, that wasn't God, Marcion would say. Well, there's something to say about that. So superabundance, singularity, priority, the timing of the gift is what's important here. It comes before the recipient's initiative. The given is not obligated by a previous gift. We don't have a quid pro quo going on here. Um, for God so loved the world, I'm um, sorry, not that one. Um, we love because he first loved us would be an example. God's initiating love, his prior love, God moves first. That aspect of a gift or then one that I think probably resonates with me and probably most of us um, the most, because it, it's, it's one that Paul is probably most comfortable in, the incongruity of grace. Um, the distribution of the gift without regard to the worth of the recipient. The gift is given to unworthy and unfitting recipients. The, the greater the unworthiness of the recipient, the greater the gift in terms of the perfection of the incongruity of grace. It's more gracious if the recipient is a scalawag. For while we were yet sinning, Christ died for us. Uh oh. You alright, Henry? Alright. Do you mind opening the door and just let him get some some colds? So. Yep. Yep. Um, it's warm. Um, yep. Thank you, Mel, very much. Um, hey, Perry, you want to open that and get some motion, some air going? Um, why don't we go to the living room? Let's call an audible. Um, Hey, Ron. I'm glad to see you. Hello. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That's in my faint. Um, yeah. Um, let's go see if anybody's going to follow. Um,
Hello. Just moving a quick shift here. We can just kind of move chairs around, I think. Um, find a way to get comfortable. I think so. Um, um, uh, I'll stand up here and just kind of move the room around. And Thank you. Still feels really dark. Um, hello. Can I help you. Hello, Miss Bill. Yeah, that helps. All right. Lord, be with Henry. Um, help in every way. Um, in Jesus' name, Amen. Let's reset, shall we? John Barclay, professor of, uh, of theology of New Testament at, um, at Durham, gives us this way of thinking about grace so that when we say Pelagius doesn't believe in grace, uh, Augustine does. That's a famous um, battle in church history. Um, Augustine's conception of grace versus Pelagius. We get the word semi-Pelagian. Very boring, I know. We're going to get to the word... Um, uh, we can more properly say uh, Pelagius believes in grace. He just believes in it differently. Um, he didn't believe in the incongruity. He was an early Ben Franklin. Um, God helps those who help themselves. That's not incongruity, is it? Um, if you show some measure of worth or merit, if you take the first step towards God, God will, in his grace, meet you. Um, or you can perfect it all the way and say, no, while we are weak or godless or as enemy or yet sinning, God's glory, God's graciousness is magnified by demonstrating his love for you in precisely that time when there's no merit at all. Um, or efficacy and non-circularity. We'll hit pause on that and pick it up next week a little bit more. The most contentious parts um, are these two. Uh, whether or not a little bit like um, uh, 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 singularity, is it going to be a quid pro quo? Is, is the grace of God going to do something? Or uh, do, do, is there a human agency involved in it? Does the God's grace do all the work? Or after God does something, we have a part to play. Um, Non-circularity and efficacy start to deal with that question. Does that even begin to make sense? Because I'll probably use this a little bit. It's just a helpful way. Jacob, yeah, um, kind of come back to it. Okay. So I'm reading Second Kings, and uh, the narrative will go to this king and say, "Well, he did wicked things, but then uh, God, you know, was." Uh, not as wrathful on him as he could have been because of the covenant with David. Uh, when we look at that, how should we uh, think about the uh, perfections of grace? Um, well, you know, maybe we have a little conversation. Um, I think of singularity there, um, that God's singular intention is for our benefit and not for our harm, um, plans to, uh, to prosper and not to uh, uh, not to bring down, not to judge, or not to 
to uh, to hurt. Um, uh, that's my first thinking there. Um, but it, it's it's a good example in the scripture itself. Is it always consistent? How are we thinking about things? Um, are there certain emphases that I resonate with more? And there clearly are. Um, there clearly are. Uh, but what's the word going to do? And how is it going to confront some of those biases that I may bring into it as it's speaking to me? Um, does that come at a little bit singularity? Yeah. What, what yeah, we, what's just, your thought? I, I'm wondering if um, you do have uh, uh, an instance one of the emphases of grace is there's nothing previous. There's no, uh, you know, that, of course, I wouldn't want to say God was bound to anything. But, mm-hmm. um, there's nothing previous that God sees. There's nothing previous that God would look to. Sure. Yet, uh, in this case, God, you know, ex- it explicitly said God looked to their ancestors or their forebears and said because of them. Yep. Once the promise was given prior to anything else, then there is this, and he looks back, and God remembered Noah, as it were, um, and God remembered his covenant, uh, and then God remembered uh, me. Um, and in that remembering, he lifts me up, and he restores me. That's true. Yeah. Anyway... For some of us, I know the superabundance and you know all the different other the other five uh, perfections may be helpful, maybe not at all. Take it home, read it, Google it. There's some good stuff. Uh, may come back to it some. Just a way to think about the different aspects of grace. And now let's get into First Corinthians 15 because this is a really good, really good passage. Um, so now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I gospeled to you. That's how it comes out. Um, uh, now I would remind you, I would, I would make known to you again. And here I think of God's, um, I was reading about this last night, in fact, where the word of God, especially as, as Paul heard it coming out of, uh, of Genesis and Exodus and, 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 and the other aspects of the Torah, is not just this abstraction, but it's a thing. And so the, the Old Testament especially will speak of the word of God leading us out, as it were. The Word of God, I think it even says someplace, it takes our hand, or the Word of God places the Word on my lips, where the Word is a person, almost. And there's this part of the Word, now I would remind you, now I would bring this Word back to you, I would have the Word place in your mind this. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the Gospel I gospel to you. It's one of my favorite Words. There are several words that, that we translate in English, preach, uh, but um, you'll know this from some of my classes. The gospel, euangelion, which I euangelizoed to you. It just verbs the noun. The gospel which I gospeled to you, um, uh, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Um, and so now he starts to unfold this. This gospel which I gospel to you, which you received, and that's a word that always resonates with me, that we're always in the receptive position, that the big organ, the chief organ of the Christian is the ear, um, that it comes to us, and we're in the, the mode of reception, this, uh, this personal reception over and over and over again. It's resonant with me of why I come here every Sunday. Again, because the bones aren't there, 
and I come back and I receive this word which has been tried and true, which I do desperately need and which God is so eager to give. And he has for generations and generations and generations. This word which I worded to you, this gospel which I gospel to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. The present tense, the present and ongoing tense. This is where we were in Colossians, asking the question, what does it feel like to be salvationed? The experience in real time of being saved. And here, um, you know, it's usually drowning. I don't know why that's the metaphor that, that we normally go to. I think probably because most of us have at some point in our childhood, if not our adulthood, have felt the panic that begins to move on us when we're underwater and you can't breathe. And there is no, I mean, it's, it's, it, is, it is frightening. And so being in that space and then you're out and then somebody outside of you delivers you. I was saved. Now I'm in the boat and now I'm on the way to the shore. I am being saved. And I'm in that moment. I'm not yet on land, but I'm not yet under the water absent. It's something like that, which is kind of our life in this ongoing sense of being salvationed. Um, I once was saved, I am saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. All these different ways which we just approach the single aspect of God saves. Um, and God saves us. God saves you and God saves me. Um, this gospel which I gospel to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, word I gospel to you, unless you believed in vain. In vain there is more like without purpose or without thought, um, without sort of letting it go back, which I hope the Spirit is doing now, and just letting it sort of be smeared on you, receiving it again, um, not in vain, not, not flippantly, not carelessly, um, which I do 98% of the time, but at the grace of God, there's that word, would, would, would condescend and would place this in our minds, which place this in our hearts that the eyes of our heart would be opened, and that I would behold him in all of his glory, his healing and wonder-working power, his resurrection power. Um, if that would happen, well then 1 Corinthians 15 is starting to do what 1 Corinthians 15 has done so often for so long. And then Paul shifts, and he goes to uh, really an early Christian creed. Um, we even get this in our creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, because, of course, this came first. It's very interesting. 1 Corinthians was probably one of the early letters um, that we have, earlier letters that we have in the New Testament, roughly analogous to the length of time that we stand today from 9-11 is the length of time that Paul was standing from the resurrection of Christ. And so it's something that close to him. That sort of hit me again. It's like Because that, to me, feels, you know, very, I can remember, we all can, if you were alive, uh, where we were, what we were doing, how we felt, how much I wanted to go home. Mamie and I were just married about a year earlier. I just remember, I just wanted to be with her. I just wanted to go home. I wanted to, to slow down. Remember, no internet, so you had to watch TV. Um, you had to wait for it to come to you. There's that reception again. I just wanted, that's how close Paul is. That's kind of how he's coming back in these next verses. For I delivered to you uh, as of first importance, protos, as of, uh, as of uh, 
but both first of all and also the most important thing. For I delivered to you, uh, I turned over to you, uh, what I also received, this reception, uh, this, this, uh, this personal word sifted over time and time and time, uh, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It's grounded. Um, it has a witness. The Scriptures, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not floating. Um, we have a root, and that root is a, is a, is a, is, is a word, is a written word, the Scriptures, um, and that Christ died for your sins. Um, he was really killed. Uh, uh, that He was buried. The emphasis there is He was really dead. He went all the way down. He went into the earth. And on the third day, he was raised. Um, uh, very similar to what Paul says in Romans 4. Jesus was delivered over for our sins and raised for our justification. Um, an early Christian creed. This I believe. And then he continues. Um, so first of all, if, if Jesus, um, you can almost see the creed form. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. And he appeared. And now he wants to unfold this appearance. And then he gets to an appearance where he appeared to me as of one untimely born, last of all. Not a vision, but an actual appearance. In the same way that Carol Ann appears to me right now, um, Paul wants to say, it was that. I didn't see him in a dream. The Bible's full of that. He appeared to me. I saw him. The risen Lord encountered me on the road to Damascus. And Paul unfolds that by going like this. And he appeared to first to Cephas, to Peter, and then to the twelve, um, to the disciples in the upper room. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers. We don't have any other record of this except right here. Um, but very compellingly, he said, most of whom are still alive. So he's basically saying, go ask Ed. He's over there. You know where he lives. You can talk to him. Go, go talk to him. As close as 9-11 was, we know people who were in New York. What was it like? Did it really fall? I was there. It really fell. Um, uh, most of whom are still alive, so it's empirically verifiable. He wants to really assert that as then it comes to his apostleship. Uh, Though some have fallen asleep or who are now dead. And then he appeared to James, his half-brother, and then to all the apostles. And then last of all, and so he wants to say two things about that, both in the chronology, that's the last one, both he's least amongst all, he wants to say that, and as a humility, I don't think it's, it's, obviously it's not a false humility, but also this doesn't happen again. Last of all, now if I see Christ in a dream, it's a vision. It's not the risen Lord appearing to me like Reed and Abby do right now. Last of all, he appeared to me, because um, this is how we, we, one of the marks of an apostle, at least in, in a certain specific phrase, Terry and I have talked about this, um, uh, uh, apostolicity in this sense um, was established by, did you, did you know Christ personally? Did, you, did he appear to you in his risen form? And Paul's putting it out there, he's like, I did, I do. In the same way he appears to, to, uh, to James and John and James and Peter and others who wrote the Bible, John, um, John the Revelator, John um, the, the Evangelist, he appeared also to me. Last of all, as one untimely born, weird word, gross word, uh, very specific word, I don't even want to say this, um, 
the, the word here uh, is an aborted fetus. Like Ezekiel 16, I think it is, um, which has to do with an afterbirth, where he says, Israel, you are a baby that was thrown away. This is the word of God coming to, uh, to Israel through the prophet Ezekiel, uh, who was not loved, and you were thrown out. Even the afterbirth, the cord was never cut, and no one cleaned you, no one salted you, no one cared for you. But then the Lord cared for Israel. In a similar way, I think, Ezekiel 16, it might be, Mark's not here, I was going to ask him that this morning. Could Paul have something like that, where it's not, you know, you're thrown out with your afterbirth? No, the Bible is really gross. I mean, it's very explicit. I mean, it's just something we deal with. Uh, like an aborted fetus, untimely born, unnaturally born, um, uh, dead, needing life. Uh, there's a sadness to it. There's to my ear anyway. Um, as to one untimely, unnaturally born, who is, I mean, less than the portrait of a child who needs and needs and needs and needs and needs, this child never even had, there's no possibility, there's no pregnancy, there's no potential. As to one untimely born, as to an aborted fetus, and then Paul, I can almost hear him cry, he appeared also to me. <laughs> and he goes on, for I am the least, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy, incongruity, remember the, 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 the perfections of grace, unworthy to be called an apostle because um, he was getting waylaid and, and, uh, and everybody said oh Paul you know he's strong in his letters but have you seen him I mean that guy is a weak woebegone man I mean undisfigured uh, not attractive probably squeaked when he talked or something else like that he was constantly being derided by the quote super apostles um, Paul would pick that up in Paul's letters and so he's yielding he's saying like, oh that's true and it's, it's, it's much worse than that. Like an aborted fetus. I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted to his shame, because I killed people who were Christians, because I persecuted the church of God. But, gosh, Paul runs to the butt. I mean, I love this word in his letters. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I mean, it's Popeye, isn't it? <laughs> um, but by the grace of God... This superabundant, singular, incongruent, uh, efficacious, wondrous, powerful grace of God. This word which is a thing, which does what it's going to do. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I didn't choose to be here. I didn't choose this life. The Lord placed me in it. And so he shrugged his shoulders. I am what I am. I'm not saying what I'm saying. I was bought with a price. I'm dead. My trespasses and sins. The life I live, I don't live it. It's not my life. I have been crucified. This is not me. I don't have any agency. If you want to give it that kind of funny word. Counseling word, isn't it? Um, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. Similar to the other word. Was not without purpose. Efficacious. The efficacious... Um, uh, perfection of grace. It was not without purpose. It had purpose. It had telos. It had efficacy. On the contrary, 
I worked harder. And he's going to, just like in Galatians, say, but it wasn't me, but, but, but it's me. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, by the grace of God that is with me. So he just goes back, whether it was me or them, who cares? It doesn't matter. I am what I am. It is what it is. Uh, this is what's true. Uh, so we preach, and so you believe. So we gospel, and so you receive. This word which you've received over and over and over, and which forms you, which makes you, which is living and active and is doing the thing that it's purposing. Uh, God's goodness given to you. Um, so the bells are ringing. Um, pause there. Um, think about John Barclay's Perfections of Grace, the resurrection of Christ. It really happened. We'll talk about that more next week. For if it didn't, we amongst all are most pitied. Um, uh, it's the foundation, it's the cornerstone of Christian doctrine. Um, because again, if, if Christ wasn't delivered for our death and raised for our justification, to resolve to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified and His resurrection. Uh, but most of all, most of all, um, pastorally, where does it touch you? What's the word that lifts you up? Something as jarring as Paul's language. Last of all, least to, least, last of all, as to me, untimely born, an aborted fetus, I am what I am, raised by Christ. Um, let's pray. Take these words, Lord, humbly and feebly offered, especially in an unusual hour. Um, uh, tend to those that need you, Lord, um, but speak to us um, here gathered in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, y'all, very much. It is. Thank you. Good. Absolutely. You okay? I am. I am. So, um, pull everything back. Oh, good. Thanks. Uh, the sections will get it. That's very kind. Thank you very much. Um, oh, Balin. You were talking about the guy in the hot room. I know, I know, I know. That was I shouldn't, I shouldn't have done that. So, um, poor Henry. Hey, man. Can I give you a hug? It is good to see you, Ron. It is really good to see you. How are you? Ron's been in the hospital. Oh, my gosh. Um, got out yesterday? Yes. Oh, Made it right to church, man. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.